1997, a small group of people approached R.C. Sproul about the idea of starting a new church. R.C. was already buried with two full-time ministry positions, but the group was insistent that he join them as their teaching pastor. And before too long, they were ready to launch. And the question was, well, what do we name our church? That's always kind of the, the thing to do when you're starting. I remember our conversations as a church plant. Uh, what are we going to call ourselves? Now, certainly, R.C. Sproul was arguably the greatest Reformed teacher at the time. And so the members of the church, they'd need a good name for this church, wouldn't they? So what would it be? What would, what would be a good name for this new budding church? Would it be St. Peter's Church? That sounds strong. What about St. John's or maybe go full Reformation, St. Martin? In the end, they decided on this name instead. St. Andrew's Chapel. The reason that they gave? Because Andrew is known throughout Scripture for being a person who brings other people to Jesus. And that's what they wanted to do. Now, when we think about it, the Apostle Andrew is probably not the first name that jumps to the top of your list when you think about popularity of apostles. Out of all the apostles listed in the first group, and we've talked about the groupings, three groups of four in every single list that we see in the Gospels, out of the first group of Peter, Andrew, James, and John, uh, we know the least about Andrew. We know very little about Andrew. Apart from seeing his name on a list, we read no stories about him in the book of Acts. He writes no gospel account. There are no letters attributed to him in the Bible. There are only 12 references to Andrew in the New Testament, and many of those are simply to list him uh, in a list of names of other names as well. And while we would be tempted to disregard Andrew because of his relative obscurity, the bottom line is this. The Lord Jesus called him as a disciple and furthermore as an apostle. He was the first one called, we believe. He was close to the Lord and knew him really well. And he was faithful in the early church history and remained faithful until his death. For those reasons and more. So today we're going to explore the Bible's teaching on the Apostle Andrew. I want you to turn in, the, in your Bible with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. As we're working through our exposition of Matthew... Again, we're kind of paused over Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 through 4, because those are the lists of the apostles, and we're kind of working our way through, through that list and trying to figure out who these men are, because we're going to read a lot about them in the coming uh, weeks and months and potentially years. John is the last person to pen a gospel years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke had completed theirs. Now, due to the variation of content, if you read John, it reads very differently than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I tend to think that John wanted to tell a little bit more of the story before he passed away. John's gospel really assumes the same material historically as the other gospels. And so he's writing in the the latter years of the first century, probably around 90 AD. And the other gospels have been out for decades. And so he's already assuming that everybody knows these stories and knows this content. But now he's going to give a few more stories. He's going to be adding to the whole picture details that's a fuller and richer account of the life of Jesus and the foundation of Christianity. It's interesting to note that there is virtually nothing said by the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, about Andrew. If you were to read them, and I, I went back and I checked this again this week and I was scanning through and 
Couldn't find anything about Andrew, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, except to just see his name in the lists. And so for decades, if you didn't know the story in Jerusalem, if you didn't know the apostles personally, you might be scratching your head about, well, tell me something about Andrew. And so John, interestingly enough, adds in three scenes in his story that feature Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. And so we have the first one here in John chapter 1. John 1 begins with an 18-verse prologue. The Apostle John introduces the ministry of John the Baptist, who is himself the forerunner of the Messiah. John the Baptist preaches repentance and he baptizes people in the Jordan River. His ministry, as you can imagine, drew a crowd. And large numbers of people would come out to the wilderness to see him and hear him and investigate. But John was especially popular with the common people. So the religious zealots, they didn't like John because he was a threat to their authority and to their their rule. But the regular folks, like you and me, they, they liked John because he was announcing the coming of the Messiah, the one who's going to save the people. And that's what they wanted to hear about. And so in addition to the crowds, however, John had many devout followers. So he had specific men who would follow behind him and learn from him the same way that The rabbi Jesus later on would have people following him. But these followers, they were studying the scriptures with John. They're listening to his preaching. They're striving to live a life of godliness. It's believed that John the Baptist took what's called the Nazarite vow. It was just a vow of devotion. He would have certain kind of disciplines. He also dressed kind of funny. He wore camel's hair and he let his hair grow long and would only eat certain kinds of foods and very strict in his observances. And we know, however, among the followers, that Andrew was one of the followers of John the Baptist. So Andrew would have spent time with John. And he was with him on the day that John identified Jesus of Nazareth as the long-awaited Messiah. So pick it up in John chapter 1, starting in verse 29. We're just going to get the context. I want to kind of walk into this here. Verse 29, this is dropping in the middle of a story here, but he says, The next day... He saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him so that he might be manifested to Israel. I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and remained upon him. Talking about Jesus, he said, I did not recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. That's John the Baptist's testimony when he sees Jesus walking toward him. Marvelous occurrence in the course of the Scriptures. So John is identifying Jesus as the Lamb of God. That's not just messianic in terms of the long-awaited Messiah, but that even goes back to uh, Levitical law the sacrificial lamb that was paying for sins or sacrificed for, the, for the, the covering of sins, even though we understand the sacrifices themselves did nothing of their own accord. But it's pointing to this ultimate sacrifice. And John says, this is the lamb of God. This is the sacrifice for our sins. The sentiment speaks, again, of this sacrificial work that Jesus is going to do three years from that point. There was no confusion about what Jesus is coming to do, even from the earliest days. 
He was coming as a Savior from sin. Again, this is very clear at the beginning of who Jesus is and why he's there. And we know that Andrew is there as a witness to this initial reveal. Keep on going in verse 35. I'm in John 1.35 now. Again, the next day John was standing with two of the disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, Where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Look at verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, again, we don't know how long these disciples would have ultimately uh, stayed. They don't, we don't know how long they've been following John the Baptist. We don't know any of the timelines in any of the stories so far. But here's the point. They're following John for a length of time. Once they realize who Jesus is, they're now compelled to follow him. And verse 40, again, identifies one of the two as Andrew, the brother of Peter, And it's also believed that the other disciple, and the scholars have debated this and talked about this, but many believe the other disciple who's listed in this story is John himself, the writer of the gospel, yet he doesn't name himself. Interesting, John never actually names himself anywhere except to call himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. How humble, isn't that great? The disciple, oh, he loves me. No, I'm not going to go too far with that. But so he doesn't name himself, but we believe that that's who this is, that it's John the, the apostle here, and then Andrew, they're the ones that are following. Now again, it's likely that Andrew didn't begin following permanently at this point. We don't have reason to believe that. In fact, when we encounter Simon Peter and Andrew together a little bit later in the chronology, in the story, for example, Matthew 4 records that they're both engaged in the fishing business. They're fishermen, and so they're there with James and John, the sons of Zebedee. So they're already back to their normal trade at that point. So even though they've already encountered Jesus, now they're back to work. So we know that Andrew does not officially begin his discipleship in John chapter 1, no doubt because Jesus had not yet called him formally. But at this point in John 1, Andrew has encountered Jesus. He has seen uh, and identified him as the Lamb of God. And he immediately rushes to meet his acquaintance. He He wants to know who this is. But we read about... Next, introduces us to the pattern of Andrew's future ministry. So we've already been in chapter 1, verse 40. Look at the very next verse. Verse 41. We're talking about Andrew now. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas which translated is Peter. I want you to notice something here in the text. John, the writer of the gospel, uses this word first, protos in the Greek, first. Scholars have debated and discussed uh, the the usage of this word. The the text says he first uh, found Simon, his brother. D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, has noted that grammatically this refers to the first action taken by Andrew. Now, why is that important? Because it gives us a window into Andrew's personality. Once he realizes who Jesus is, 
Okay, once he has that apprehension of this is the Lamb of God, this is the Messiah, this is the Christ, once he realizes that, the first thing he does is run and tell someone else. That's his first impulse. And who is it that he tells? His brother Simon. His brother Simon. Now, to briefly recap our study from last week, from the life of Peter, we know that both of these brothers are together. They're from the town of Bethsaida, which is a small fishing village in the northern region of Galilee. So uh, Israel, uh, or excuse me, Judea, uh, Judea is in the south, Samaria is in the middle, and Galilee is in the north. So it's the northern part of Israel. Uh, They're both professional fishermen. They're likely in business together. They do this together. Eventually, they move to Capernaum, which is a little bit more populated, but they move there to follow Jesus in his ministry because Jesus relocates to Capernaum. But at this point in the story, they're both living and working in Bethsaida, and despite this grueling profession of fishermen, Andrew still finds time to follow this strangely dressed wilderness prophet named John the Baptist. But however, once he encounters Jesus, everything changes for Andrew. He goes and tells his brother Simon, look at what he says to him. He says, we have found the Messiah. We've found the Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek translation. So Messiah and Christ are the same thing. Messiah means long-awaited, anointed one. Anointed one is the idea here. This is the one whom the Jews have been waiting for for centuries. He was coming to deliver them, to save them. And now the Savior is here on earth. He's arrived. He's with them. He's walking around among them. And John and Andrew both realize this because their teacher, John the Baptist, identifies him. And the first thing Andrew does in verse 42 is tell his brother Simon. And then it says in verse 42... He brought him to Jesus. And as we're going to see, this becomes a pattern for Andrew. Several months go by, and Jesus is approaching both Simon, Peter, and uh, Andrew. And they're packing up their nets for the night after an unsuccessful uh, fishing adventure. Luke 5 records the instance where Jesus, he commands them to put their nets back into the sea. We read this from last week. Simon Peter, he pushes back a little bit. He says, Master, we have worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I will do what you say and let the nets down. I get the sense because he's exhausted from working all night. He doesn't really want to do this, but he does it anyway. And obviously, Andrew is with him in the boat and they're getting ready to go do this. No sooner does the, do they do this, and this, the miracle happens, and the boat begins to fill with fish, which is crazy. The boat fills with fish. It begins to sink. They call in James and John. John James and John come in. They start filling their boat. Their boat begins to sink. I mean, this is a r- miraculous thing, where all these fishermen have this enormous catch of fish. And finally, in response to this amazing miracle, Peter gets out of the boat, goes and stands before Jesus, falls down at his feet and cries out and confesses. Uh, he says, uh, I am a sinful man, depart from me. He comes to the realization of his own sinful condition, standing in the presence and the glory of Christ. And with, ja- with that, Jesus exhorts Simon. He says, do not fear, for now on you'll be catching men. Luke records that at that point, Peter, James, and John all begin following Jesus. Matthew, however, records what Luke leaves out, that Andrew is also with them there. So again, 
in the course of the, the textual narrative, Andrew's name is just left out. It's like he's in the background, and you know, it's almost like they forget about him or something. Peter, James, and John, oh, there's Andrew. Oh, bring him along. That's kind of the sense of the text here. But he is there. He's with them. He's with the other men, and he leaves his nets. He walks away from his fishing business, and he's going to go and follow Jesus. But our next encounter in the text with Andrew is uh, in John chapter 6. So turn over to John 6 with me. John 6. This is the well-known account of the feeding of the 5,000. This event is recorded in all four of the Gospels. And so every single Gospel that you have here, they all record the exact same occurrence. However, in the synoptic Gospels, and when I say synoptic, I mean the same view, the same optic, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the conversation between Jesus and Philip is not recorded. The gist of the account in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is basically this. A large crowd of people come in and identifies 5,000 men, which we would assume includes about twenty to 30,000 total because you're including women and children now. But 5,000 men, they all gather to hear Jesus speak. It gets later in the day, and the day's drawing to a close, and they don't really know what to do. Nobody has any food. No one has any provisions. And so the, the decision to be made now is do we send these thousands of people away to go find food and find lodging? And Jesus at one point says, I, I'm concerned for them that they're going to perish along the way. So do we try to deal with the problem here just as a group of thousands and thousands of people, or do we send them back and let them fend for themselves? The 12 asked Jesus to send them away. So they come to Jesus and they say, look, we can't handle this 12 of us, plus you. We can't handle these thousands and thousands of people by ourselves. We don't have any money. We don't have any, any means. But Jesus, at that point, he brings them near, performs this miracle, and then feeds all of the 5,000 men. But again, twenty or 30,000 people feeds all of them, and then there are 12 baskets of food left over. So again, that's the well-known story. All the early audiences would have known that. But then John, John does again something different. That's why I like John. John provides additional details to open up the story even more. John adds to the story two interchanges between Jesus and the disciples. So look at John chapter 6. After these things, Jesus went away on the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing what a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii, Worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. Now at this point, this is the first time in sort of Bible history of the New Testament that we learn that Philip is the one who's reasoning with Jesus about this. We also know the intention. Jesus already knows what he's going to do, and he's asking the question of Philip to test him. What are you going to say, Philip, when you bring me this problem that seems way too big for you? How are you going to solve it? And we know that there is not enough money. They don't have nearly enough money to feed all these people. And again, the other Gospels record that they tell Jesus they only have five loaves and two fish. But another question we have to ask is, okay, where do they get these 
these five loaves and two fish from? John tells us. Look at verses 8 and 9. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? From these verses, we learn that there is, uh, that Andrew is the one who is identifying with bringing this small lunch. Again, the other Gospels don't record this information of the interaction with, with Philip and the interaction with uh, Andrew, but here we see it now. Now, I've heard sermons, whole sermons on the virtue of the boy who shared his lunch. I've heard eisegetical sermons about that. I've, I've heard sermons about the dialogue about between Andrew and the boy, what he might have said, and so on and so forth. And all of that sounds nice, but it's not in the text. It's not here. We don't presume to know anything about the boy who brought the lunch. We don't know anything about the conversation. We don't know anything about the relationship. We don't know anything except for what is actually here. The truth is, all that's extra-biblical. In a parallel account in Mark 6, Jesus tells the disciples to go and search for food in the crowd. So Andrew, we know from Mark 6, that Andrew, he went out and found this boy. Why? Because everybody was going out in the crowd saying, do you have any food? Do you have any food? What can you spare? Did you bring anything? And Andrew's the one who comes back out of all 12 disciples, going out among thousands of people, Andrew's the one who finds the boy. He's got five loaves, two fish, not very much, just enough for a small lunch for a young boy. And he says, okay, why don't you come with me? He's the one who brings him to Jesus, and that's where they get this food. Of course, Andrew's comment demonstrates that he, too, is also struggling with the reality of the provision. He asks, what are these for so many people? Now, Jesus, we want to take note of this. Jesus never at any point in the Gospels rebukes Andrew for doing anything wrong. Now, he rebukes his brother all the time. Maybe Andrew just kind of took note and said, well, I don't want to do what Peter did, so I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. But the bottom line is that there's never a rebuke of anything that Andrew says or does. But we do know that he is struggling with this because he asks, what are we, what are we supposed to do with this? This is not enough. These five loaves, two fish, it's not enough. But despite his skepticism, he is still faithful to bring this boy and this food back to Jesus, even though he might doubt that it's not going to do anything. But look what the Lord does with this tiny offering. Look at verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise also of the fish as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments. And from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Now again, marvelous occurrence here. Jesus performs this divine miracle and it further solidifies his identity as the prophet of God, the Messiah, but also his power. Again, it's undeniable in Israel at this point. Even, even Jesus' opponents have to acknowledge that he's performing real signs and real miracles. John chapter 3, Nicodemus, one of the leaders in the Pharisees, he comes to him and he says, Teacher, we know that you've been sent here by God because nobody can do the signs that you're doing unless God's with them. So they acknowledge this is, this is really divine here. 
The purpose, again, is to demonstrate both God's provision for his people. Now, you have to see the parallels here. Jesus feeding the 5,000 in this wilderness area, this is very similar to the manna in the wilderness for the Israelites. So Jesus is duplicating the miracle himself in the same way. But it's also to demonstrate what Jesus says about himself later in John 6.35 when he tells the people, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. The idea being that Jesus feeds all these people, feeds their bellies, and there's more than enough left over. If Jesus can fill your belly miraculously, certainly, certainly he can feed your soul. Can he not? That's the idea. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Friends, if Jesus can do this out of thin air, then certainly he can care for you and me. Certainly he can minister to you with compassion. Certainly he can give you hope for the future. People are struggling with hope right now. Christ has hope for us. He is our hope for the future. Certainly if he can do all this, he can forgive your sins. Certainly if he can do this, he can provide eternal life for you. So we're meant to see this miraculous account as a sign, not just of his power, but also of his provision, even for believers, for you and me. So again, the power is, the, sto- the, po- the point of the story is the power and the sufficiency of Christ. But again, for our study today, we see that Jesus uses this small provision from the boy, and he uses the obedience of Andrew to accomplish it. He uses both of these, these people. The last recorded interaction with Andrew in the Gospel of John comes to us in chapter 12. So flip over to chapter 12. John chapter 12. Again, all of this comes right in John. It's pretty cool. The events of John 12 come at the end of the earthly ministry of Jesus. The disciples have been with him for three years and now they've come to this final Passover week before Jesus is going to go to the cross on that Friday. To give you some further sense of where we are in the context of the passage and the place in the Bible, right before or right after this is John chapter 13, and 13 through 17 are what is known as the upper room discourse. This is the place uh, where Jesus teaches all the disciples. Uh, This is Thursday night, immediately before he's arrested the following morning. So all these events are taking place kind of right at the end, right before Jesus goes to the cross. And so at this point in the, the narrative, the disciples have seen a lot. They've been with him for three years. They've seen all the things he's done. They've heard all of his teaching. They've seen amazing signs. They've already seen the triumphal entry. Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the back of the foal of a donkey. And this is what we, what we know to be Palm Sunday. The people are, are cheering for him. There are massive crowds all around and they're cheering for him. And they're yelling out, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, save now. The crowds are now, there's a fever pitch here. The crowds are acknowledging he's come to save us. Now, they don't know exactly what he's saving them from. They don't realize what he's actually saving them from. They think he's there to save them from the Romans. But in fact, he's there to save them from their sins. And then we read about some people who have traveled to meet Jesus in Jerusalem. And the question is, okay, if you're a traveler in the early first century and you go to this massive city, there's about, they believe that at the time, Jerusalem would have been about 100,000 people normally. But in the, during the Feast of Passover, 
there were pilgrims that would travel from all over the region to come to Jerusalem. So the population in that one week would grow from 100,000 to about a million people. So kind of like Loud International Speedway, right? Something like that. 80,000 people just flocked to this one little spot. Same thing in Jerusalem. A million people, they all pilgrimaged there. If you're traveling to Jerusalem on foot or on horseback, and you're there in the city with a million people, and you're looking for one person, you don't have a cell phone, you don't have any kind of a, of a tour guide of where you're going to go, how do you find one person? How do you find Jesus if you're in this city? And that's what these people, these travelers do. The Greeks here, in John chapter 20, we're going to pick it up in John uh, 12, starting in verse 20. So John 12, 20 says, Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These men came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. Now this is very interesting in my opinion. You might read that and say, okay, well they talked to some people and some stuff happened, that's great. There's a lot more, I think, in the details we might first believe. The Greeks are traveling here. They've come to worship again with these million people. They're here for Passover. They hear about the Messiah. The Messiah has come. They want to meet him. They want to know who this is. And so somehow they find Philip. Now, some textual scholars say that uh, the reason that John identifies Philip as being from Bethsaida of Galilee, uh, Bethsaida is near Decapolis, which is a a Greek or Roman city. And so it could have been that maybe these two knew each other, maybe they were aware of Philip, or some, there's some kind of connection that could be. We don't really know. But we're thinking here that if anybody can bring someone to Jesus, it's got to be one of the 12 disciples. So they find one. They just find one disciple. Okay, he's our link in. Okay, so if we're going to get to Jesus, we've got to get to this disciple. They find Philip, and they say, Philip, we want to know, we want to come to meet Jesus. Now Philip, if you notice, Philip doesn't go to Jesus. That's curious, isn't it? You'd think that Philip could just walk up to his master and say, Lord, I have some friends here who've come from Greece. They want to meet you. He doesn't do that. What does he do instead? Look, he goes to Andrew. He goes to Andrew. And then the two of them together, then they go to Jesus. Scholars have speculated about why this happens. Again, a little bit of his speculation was Philip maybe concerned about bringing Gentiles, Gentiles to Jesus? Remember, back in Matthew 10, when Jesus commissions the, the disciples, he tells them, you're not to go to the Gentile regions, you're going to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, you're going to go to talk to Jews about me. And so there could have been some trepidation, because now he's bringing these Gentiles to come and meet Jesus, is that okay to do? Andrew, what do you think? Is that all right? That could be one reason. It could also be that Philip didn't know where he was. Again, lots of people. Jesus was always moving around. Maybe Philip was not sure where he was, and maybe Andrew knew. Or maybe Andrew was some sort of official gatekeeper. Maybe Andrew was kind of the guy that Jesus was entrusting to say, okay, I'm going to trust you to kind of filter through all these thousands of people always around him, always had crowds. The disciples would have had to dumb some kind of uh, gatekeeping to keep people from really crushing Jesus as he walked. Maybe, maybe Andrew was one of these people. Again, we don't know. What we see here, though, is another example of Andrew bringing people to meet Jesus. And what does Jesus say when Andrew and Philip bring these Greeks to him? Very interesting. Look at verse 23. And Jesus answered them, saying, 
The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. But he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. He seizes on this request. And it's interesting. If you look at the text, it doesn't at the first glance seem to make any sense. They bring these Greeks to Jesus, and the first thing he says is, my hour has come, and he starts talking about the cost of discipleship, essentially. What does that have to do with the Greeks coming to him and what's going on here? Well, he's seizing on this occurrence to tell them that not only is he the Son of Man and he's ready to do something, but he's talking about disciples who are coming to him. Again, it's a way for him to essentially sift through. People are gonna, everybody, is, everybody wants to follow Jesus. Thousands of people. They want to come around. They want to get the miracles. They want to get the bread. Thousands of people. Ever wonder after Jesus goes to the cross and dies, where do all the thousands of people go? They're gone. No more miracles. No more lunch. No more great stories. He's gone. And in Acts chapter 1, there's only 120 people who are in Jerusalem who are gathered together to pray. Where are the thousands? Where are the tens of thousands? They're all gone. But Jesus here, he sees people coming to him again People say that they want to follow Jesus. They say they want to meet Jesus and see Jesus and follow and serve. But not everyone really knows what that means. To follow Jesus is to believe in his sacrificial death, which is why Jesus says here, the hour has come. And he gives, he gives an analogy here. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. He's talking about the natural course of, of, uh, of, of horticulture. The seed has to, to go into the ground, be planted, and then come back up again. He's, he's using this as a metaphor to talk about the fact that I have to go and die and resurrect, otherwise you have no eternal life. And so you have to believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You have to be born again to new life. And again, this new life in Christ always, always is connected to losing of the old life. I talked to someone even yesterday we were having a conversation about the gospel. I'd like to say it was a short conversation, but you guys know me, so it's, it was longer. But we're talking about the gospel, and he, he had heard all the stories. He grew up going to church and all that stuff, and that's great. And finally, we kind of got to the end of this conversation. He's kind of reasoning, and he says, I, I just don't know. And he, he smiled at me, and he said, I just don't know if I'm ready to follow Jesus. I, I don't know if I want to give it all up. I said, give up what? What are you giving up? He's like, I don't know. And I said, are you afraid you're going to lose whatever life you have in following Jesus? He said, kind of, yeah. And I encouraged him. Everything you're going to lose by following Jesus, you're not going to miss it. But everything that you're going to gain in following Christ, you'll have forever. It's really kind of a no-brainer. But to those who don't have spiritual eyesight, it's it's hard to grasp. Jesus says the same thing here. He says, if you love this life, if you're just absolutely bent on having your best life now, you're not going to have a life in the future. He says, you have to hate this life in comparison to following me. He's not talking about discontent and hating your own existence here. 
He's talking about letting go and loosening up your grip on this life to follow Christ. You know the old line in the old hymn, the things of the world grow strangely dim. That's what happens when you follow Christ. All of a sudden, the things that you were chasing before, they're just not that important anymore. Not because the life that you have isn't important, but the light of eternity is so bright. And you see the glory of Christ and you say, everything is worth following him. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, if you love this life, you're going to lose it. But if you hate this life, you'll keep your life, your real life, for eternity. He says in verse 26, if anyone serves me, you have to follow me. You have to follow me. You have to live like I live, speak like I speak, do what I do. He's the master. He's the rabbi. He says, and where I am, my servant will be also. Wherever I go, you've got to follow me. And then he says, if anyone serves me, and by implication, if anyone follows me, the Father will honor him. You want God to honor the work that you're doing, the life that you're living? Now, God is not going to honor you for the sake of you. He's going to honor you because you follow his Son, Christ. That's the idea. Those who have forsaken their old life, who deny themselves, who serve Christ, who follow Him, who will obey Him. And even, I would add, even those who suffer for Him. Right now we have brothers and sisters all around the world suffering for their faith. In countries right now, and even in the news this week, there are those who have claimed the name of Christ and have been killed for it simply because they've identified with Jesus. And in the end, however, all who follow Christ glorify Him in all they do, even in small things, even in small things. It's interesting, one writer characterized Andrew as the apostle of small things. See, Andrew wasn't bold and brassy like his brother Peter. He wasn't fierce like James and John, son of thunder. He wasn't prolific like Luke. He wasn't famous like Paul. Andrew was relatively obscure. He's pretty quiet in the Gospels. He serves in the background, yet bringing others to Christ. And many through the years, it's interesting, have drawn inspiration from this, from this concept of having a ministry like Andrew. In their book, Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome, Kent and Barbara Hughes dedicate a whole chapter of their book to encouraging the ordinary. I want you to listen to this. They write this, The Holy Spirit has gone to extensive length to make it clear in the Scriptures, both by human example and explicit statement, that God uses ordinary people. The most celebrated example is the Apostle Andrew, who is universally regarded as an average man. Can you imagine being that your legacy? Well, what did he do in this life? He's pretty average. That's Andrew. He says, we'll call him Ordinary Andrew. They've even named him Ordinary Andrew. Though Andrew was the first of the twelve to follow Jesus and thus bear the title of Protocletos, first called, he did not become a prominent apostle. Though first in order, his brother and brother to Simon Peter, he was not included in the inner circle of Peter, James, and John. It is revealing to note that Andrew was regularly identified as the brother of Simon Peter. But Peter was never identified as a brother of Andrew. 
Everyone knew Peter, but Andrew? Oh, you know who he is. He's the one who's always with Peter, the tag along, Peter's brother. Andrew wrote no epistles, no miracles are recorded of him, and he was not an eloquent preacher like his brother. Ordinary Andrew was rarely, if at all, in the foreground, and definitely not regarded as a leader. Nevertheless, he was so mightily used by God that today his name has first place in evangelism and missions. I mentioned the naming of the church pastored by R.C. Sproul, St. Andrew's Chapel. Another instance, Billy Graham's Evangelistic Association adopted the tagline, Operation Andrew, for their gospel mission. Beyond this, Eusebius, the historian, records that Andrew was the first missionary to go north of the Black Sea and preach the gospel. Hence, all of Russia, Russia, claims him as their patron saint. Also, in addition to that, the patron saint of Scotland and Greece is Andrew. Again, all of this, not because he was mighty, not because he was powerful, not because he was noble, but because he was faithful. Andrew was faithful in ministry. You know, there aren't many people who are like Paul and Peter. Not many like James and John. See, we're not all Martin Luther's and William Wilberforce's. We're not all Amy Carmichael's and Lottie Moon's. Most of us will never have a building named after us when we die. The vast majority of us are ordinary. We're told today, I think popularly, that we have to be radical for Jesus in order to be used by Him. And I don't want to scoff at that because I think there's something great about attempting a great thing for God. If God puts something in front of you and it seems huge and you're led to do it, by all means do it. I think it was William Carey who said, expect great things from God, attempt great things from God. But then Count Zinzendorf said, when you go, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. There's something about being ordinary. Ordinary. In his book, Ordinary, Michael Horton notes, over time, the hype of living a new life, taking up a radical calling, and changing the world can creep into every area of your life. And it can make us tired and depressed and mean. Of course, Horton elaborates on what constitutes ordinary, consisting of things like going to church regularly and receiving God's gifts and sharing them with other people, participating in praise and fellowship and hospitality, continuing to support the ministry financially. Now, he doesn't disparage any of those things and any of those big things that we would do. But he says this, it's the ordinary ministry, the week in and week out, that provides sustained growth and encourages the roots to grow deep. You don't have to set the world on fire to be faithful to God. 1 Corinthians 1.26, God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. He uses people like you and me all the time for that purpose. He says, and to the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are. Why? So that no man can boast before God. If you make a great name for yourself and you do amazing things, everybody praises you, it's very tempting at that point to become puffed up and think that you're something special. Interestingly enough, one of my heroes has said this, never believe your own press. Whatever anybody else says about you, don't believe it. Because you know, you know you, and your spouse knows you, and your kids know you. 
our celebrity-driven culture, I encourage you to reject the lie that you can't be used by God unless you're strong and powerful and victorious and radical. You can be used by God. God uses nobodies all the time to lead people to somebody, the somebody who can save them. All the time. He uses people like us, a church of regular people in Gilman's and Ironworks, New Hampshire, to bring lost people to Jesus Christ. And can God use you? The answer is yes. Yes. Be humble. Be faithful in small things. Small things. And God will use you. Again, the scripture says if you're faithful in little, you'll be faithful in much. So get really good, my friends, at being faithful to God even in the small things that you do. According to tradition, Andrew... He led the wife of a Roman governor to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And when her husband, the governor, found out, he was furious. He demanded that she renounce her faith in Jesus Christ. And when she didn't, he went after Andrew. He had him arrested, and he crucified him on an X-shaped cross. And it would seem that this was more tolerant not to nail him hands and feet, but it was actually very cruel They didn't nail him, they just strapped him. So he didn't have any mortal wounds, but he hung on that cross for three days with no bread and no water. And as he hung there for three days, he was praying for his enemies. And he was pleading with people who passed by to turn to Jesus Christ for life. Even in his death, even in an ordinary death for that time, they crucified Thousands of people. They stuck him up there and he prayed for those who persecuted him. And so ended the earthly life of our dear brother Andrew, ever leading others to Jesus. May that be our legacy as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful to you. God, the more that we read the scriptures and the more that we see who you use and what kinds of things you do, we recognize that we, in and of ourselves, are nothing. We know that you don't need us to do anything. You're not empty, you're not lonely, you're not incapable. You could write the gospel on the clouds and have us do nothing at all. But that is not your way. God, you have commanded us to go everywhere and proclaim the good news of Christ. You've told us to bear witness to Christ, to give testimony, to be faithful to you. And so, God, your command is enough for us to go and tell other people about Jesus and to live a life that is an example of those who follow him. And, Lord, our temptation is to to waffle back and forth and to get comfortable in the world But Lord, I I ask that you would help us to examine that comfortability. Help us to examine our own life. To sever our connection to the things of the world. And to keep our gaze fixed eternally on you. Father, we know that the gospel is worth it. The glory of Christ is worth it. Your praise and your adoration is worth it. And so help us, Lord. Even though you will likely... Never use us in this world for notoriety. I praise you that there are countless number of people 
whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And Lord, I pray that as your people gather to here to worship you, I pray, Father, that you would continue to use us to bring glory to your name. Embolden your people, Lord. Give them a sense of purpose. Help them to bring glory to you, even in the small things. I praise you, Father, for your goodness, your righteousness, and your truth. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.